welcome to COVID Roulette and today I'm out on the streets of North Fitzroy and I'm walking to the house of a prominent children's author, Billy B. Brown, Hey Jack, Polly and Buster, all very successful titles and written by one of the greats of Australian literature, Sally Rippon. And as a children's author myself, I've followed Sally on Instagram and she's posted a fair bit about her struggles after she contracted COVID. And I thought it sounded a bit like long COVID and I'd have a chat to her. COVID Roulette. Stories from the pandemic. Hi, I'm Sally Riffin. I'm a children's author who lives in Yarra. And I did get COVID earlier in the year, but I seem to be getting better. You are a children's author, Sally. You're a legendary children's author. I, as a children's author, also um, have been in the children's author traps with you. We've met many times at festivals and so forth. I think that's a lovely thing about being a children's author, isn't it? We do tend to hang out in the same places. And Sally's books are Billy B. Brown and Hey Jack and there's many others as well, including an adult book coming up soon. Shall we do the plugs at the start? <laughs> <laughs> well, you are ahead of the game because it's, yeah, it's, it's being announced um, this month. So, yeah, excellent. Well, I'll be listening. <laughs> um, but I'm here to talk about COVID. Tell us about your COVID story and, and how this nasty thing entered your life. Uh, I was early Jan and I'd been super careful, particularly to protect my mum because she's older and has some underlying uh, illnesses. And she announced at Christmas that she was going to head up and see some family for New Year's Eve in Brisbane and came back with COVID and promptly gave it to me. So all everything that I've been trying to do to keep her safe uh, didn't end up working anyway. And she was okay because she'd had three vaccinations. I mean, she was pretty sick. But unfortunately, I was a week off my booster, so I got hit pretty hard. So tell us about your symptoms or tell us about her symptoms. You say that she's, you know, elderly and and how did she go was she did she sail through or headaches and vomiting or what did you see I think it was mainly because it was still quite early days we were just terrified we really didn't know what to expect or how sick we were going to get and she was on her own as well so that was a little bit scary that we couldn't actually go in and help her so I just dropped some things at her door but I think mainly it was the fear you know we didn't know whether we should be trying to get her into a hospital to get some extra support so we kept a close eye on her and within two days I it was so obvious I was sick as well and interestingly she tested positive first of all we'd managed to get some rats to her but my first test came up as negative but I had exactly the same symptoms as her so I knew what it was and really for me it started with a sore throat like incredibly sore throat to the point that by the second day I could only eat lemonade icy poles (laughs) um cracking headache like my skull was splitting open and then a whole sorry that's my dog who's keeping us company then a whole lot of other really weird symptoms like um really bad cramps and stomach aches and a really bad sciatica that lasted for a few days too so just lots of weird things that completely different to anything I've ever had before and I, did you say, I mean, you kept a diary, I think, or you wrote blogs. It was quite 
illuminating because as you say you were early on um, not many of us had had it at that point and and did you use the expression that there was like an army of fire ants in your brain or something (laughs) I think I said something like that yeah it was like my skull was kind of crawling so yeah like a cracking pain in my skull I do get migraines I get headaches but this was nothing like that it was really yeah like and it was very hot over that period it was early January so I felt very hot very feverish but not in that lovely kind of sweaty way that a normal flu brings on. Just really, um, really, nothing like I've experienced before. I know I said that before, but that's that's really what I reiterate. was so unusual and that was what made it quite scary too. And so it was 14 days in and nowadays people are being released after seven. How long were your systems persisting? Uh, were you Would you have been fine to leave after seven? I think by the time I got it, it was 10 days, but... I was being extra careful and so kind of just kept to myself for 14 because it had only just switched over. But I have to say what was really fantastic, particularly because my mother and I were quite scared, is that we, when we'd logged on to the government apps to say that we had COVID, um, I got a text every day just to check in on my symptoms. And that was really, because it's quite an isolating, scary feeling to be doing the isolation on your own. Um, mind you, <laughs> interestingly, I also had my teenage son with me and I was expecting him to get sick because it's only a small space that we share. He was perfectly fine. <laughs> so it's so random and I don't know if it's a coincidence, but I'd had double AstraZeneca and he dub- had double Pfizer. And so, you know, I'm not going to make any suppositions there, but um, somehow he was protected and I wasn't. <laughs> it's amazing how you get <laughs> vaccine shopping and vaccine. They've become almost like legendary stories. My friend Ben said that I had the double AstraZeneca, in other words, the, the sugar syrup. <laughs> it's a bit harsh. Well, I think it probably is a bit harsh because, you know, obviously I was really scared that it would develop into something much more complicated. And really, I knew after about the first three or four days that I was starting to get better. Then I think the problematic thing for me has been uh, just this long haul of exhaustion and other long COVID symptoms. So my mother was able to recover completely pretty quickly soon after, within about a couple of weeks. But I reckon I'm three months on and I'm just starting to feel like myself now. Well, this is really why I chose you as someone we might speak to because, I mean, I don't think you've had a long COVID diagnosis, but you have mentioned on social media a little that this is a persisting thing for you, that it hasn't just disappeared. Can you talk about what you mean by ongoing symptoms? Yeah, so when I was about two weeks out of lockdown, I went to my GP just to get some follow-ups and he um, just put me on some some natural vitamins and things like that just to boost my immunity but I found that for me the biggest thing was fatigue so I live in in an apartment that has stairs and every time I'd get to the top of the stairs I'd have to stop catch my breath and sometimes even sit down to recover from coming up and down the stairs so that was the biggest thing occasionally what would happen in the really early days is if I did try to do something that I used to do quite normally before like maybe go out for some drinks with some friends Then the next day, I would have full-blown COVID symptoms again. So the cracking headache, the sore throat, the body aches, as if I had COVID. But it would only last for a day, and then I'd go back to just the normal level of fatigue. And the second time that happened, that lasted for three days. And then I got really scared, and I thought, oh, my goodness, this could be potentially something I have to deal with. So now, as boring as it sounds, I don't go out at night because I'm really scared of pushing myself and getting into that, that state again. So... 
yeah, it's been really inhibiting of what I'm able to do. And do you think it's the going out, the kind of stimulation, or do you think it's a couple of drinks that alcohol is a trigger for your tiredness and, and fatigue? Well, I haven't drunk alcohol since I had COVID. I'd, a couple of those times when I went out at night, I had one drink. The second time I didn't have anything to drink. I think it was just going out somewhere a little bit noisy. I've only got quite a weak voice anyway. And so I think when you're in a noisy restaurant, um, you know, throwing your voice can, can be quite tiring. But those are things that, I mean, as you know, Tony, for a living, I used to go and speak in schools and, you know, I'd be around touring all around the country and getting up and giving long talks, you know, three or four times a day. I can't imagine doing anything like that now. And now I'm feeling almost completely myself, but still my energy levels are probably about 80%. And I have terrible brain fog. So I've been okay this week, but there are other times where it's like I have dementia. I can't think clearly. My words don't come to me. And all I feel grateful for is that I work for myself so I can choose my hours. But I, I would say pretty much every day I have to lie down, if not to rest my body, to actually have a sleep each day. And I'm three months along. And how has it been? I know you've had this deadline for the adult book. Have you been able to work or, or, or have you fallen behind or had extensions? How's it, how's it been? Well, I think mainly what I have done because I saw really early on that if I did go out at night the next day I'd have to spend the day in bed so I think I've just been really disciplined I have to say because this book has been a bit of a priority to meet my deadlines so when I'm working on an edit I will just not do anything else that week and so I'll work on it go take the dog for a walk come back and rest cook a he- I'm eating really healthily I'm not having coffee I'm just doing everything I can Chinese herbs have helped a lot too so yeah I got onto those were you a convert already? Yeah, yeah, I was. I actually studied in China for several years, so that was that was where I first started. I mean, long COVID is a bit of this sort of unknown. I think it's almost like a bit of a, a, a buggy man as well, that people are, are really worried, even if they're sailing through the COVID, that this is the real threat out there. Is there any recommended treatment? Obviously, you've turn towards um, the Chinese medicine that served you well in the past. But are GPs telling people anything in relation to long COVID? The message I got from my GP and also my Chinese doctor was the same. That was just listen to your body and don't push it. So before COVID, I'd been really working on my cardio. I'd been going to gym a couple of days a week and, you know, doing my 10,000 steps. But now it's like, I'll go take the dog around the block. There you go. There you go. Dog, <laughs> dog, uh, dog Said mentioned. dog. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and you are feeling better. That's the good news. You reckon yeah, yeah. you're through? Yeah. Look, I think it's been two steps forward, one back. And so every now and then I'll get a little bit smug and think, oh, yeah, you know, I'll kind of push it a little bit today and then pay for it. But I think, um, I think the most important thing that's given me is a real understanding of what it's like for people who do live with chronic illness. I think before now I'd really taken my health for granted. And when I did put a couple of posts up on Facebook, people messaged me privately saying, you know, that they live with chronic illness or they potentially have um, chronic fatigue syndrome. Finally, people are getting an understanding of what it's like for them. So I think for me, there's always this sense that I'm going to come through it. You know, I, I, I say that pretty confidently. But I think for people who may have to live with this really long term, it would be incredibly debilitating. And the fact that I can work for myself and work my own hours is also something I'm grateful for. And I spruik the vaccination message on this podcast every episode. But you've been out there as a bit of a, 
well, certainly a, a kids' book celebrity. You've been out selling the message as well, haven't you? Yeah, when they first brought up um, the vaccination program for primary school kids, there was a really lovely program they put forward where they got a whole lot of children's authors to make little videos. I think they got other people involved too, potentially sporting personalities and celebrities, just to encourage kids. You know, sometimes it can be a bit scary. Some kids do have genuine needle phobias as well. So really just to let them know that we're all doing it for the right reasons and that most of us, luckily enough, can be vaccinated. But there's some people that won't be able to for various reasons. So it's really important to know we're protecting them as well. Well, Sally Rippon, thank you so much for being a COVID letter, and best of luck with the book that I'll be looking out for. Yeah, thank you. Long COVID has become a real medical issue stemming from the pandemic, and I thought I'd speak to my old housemate. Patrick Charles lived with me in the late 90s, and he's since soared to great heights. He's now the head of infectious diseases at the Austin Hospital, and what a time to be head of infectious diseases. He's been on all sorts of government advisory boards and been working 20-hour days to try to get us through this terrible time. So I thought I'd call Pat, and I caught up with him in a busy schedule, just as he was about to fly out of Melbourne. Hello, Tony. Hello, Dr. Pat. Have I caught you uh, at an airport trying to get out of this country after two, two solid years of great effort, stellar effort for all of us? <laughs> yes. Tell us, where, where, are you, where are you going to? I'm heading to Italy, going on a uh, bike riding trip in the Dolomites. Ah, lovely. Well, let's, we, we're going to drag a little bit of information out of you, a last yeah. job before you get to relax. <laughs> sure. Um, yeah. We've spoken to Sally in this episode of the podcast, and she's explained about this sort of continuing lethargy. What's the medical explanation for what COVID has done to the body to reduce people to this state? She's, she's, she's just so tired. And feels you know feels like she can't do anything. Well, one of the really disappointing things for people who have this long COVID is we don't have a really good explanation yet. And there is, there's a huge mixture of symptoms that people get when they have long-term uh, symptoms after having COVID. These COVID long haulers or long COVID. So there's certainly very common things like just being having ongoing fatigue and uh, lack of energy to do things. And when you then try and exert yourself then for even after a fairly minimal exertion, becoming really tired for the next few days and struggling to get out of bed after that. But there's also many other symptoms like chest pain. Uh, there's an ongoing loss of sense of uh, taste and smell uh, and quite a variety of symptoms that uh, many, many others that can be continuing for many weeks or months after the COVID infection. And is there anything in the cells? Can you sort of see that some people have been knocked around in a pathological sense worse than others and you look at the long COVID people and say oh look they did get it worse? Not necessarily some people had a fairly mild infection and then end up with really nasty long COVID symptoms and then other people who had a really tough time when they had their COVID actually end up doing fine afterwards so it's not as clear-cut as the severe ones get it there is a higher chance of having long COVID if you had a severe infection but it's not just those people and unfortunately when we do the sort of standard tests we're used to doing for trying to look into things like ongoing fatigue or ongoing shortness of breath or chest pain, most of the time we really struggle to find anything on the test to kind of say, right, well, that's the cause. We know these people are clearly very unwell, but unfortunately we just don't have a good explanation as to what's going on and why they're so so disabled by this. So, so I've heard 
that it feels like chronic fatigue. And, and chronic fatigue sufferers have also copped this down the years, you know, where people can't easily identify why or how or the pathology of it. And so they get accused of being, you know, that of being all in their head sort of thing. Is, is this presenting in the same sort of way? There are definitely a lot of similarities and it's a really frustrating thing because if, if uh, you come up with someone who hasn't really looked into this very much, a lot of the doctors tend to be fairly dismissive and certainly other people in the uh, general public are often quite dismissive of this and just say, oh, look, it's all in your head, just get over it. And then really that does not work. And uh, It's clear that these people are really troubled by this and uh, we don't have the answers yet as to A, why, and B, what we can do to fix it. Traditionally, we've said things like, all right, we'll just do a graded exercise program and you know, get fitter and everything will be fine. But we know from experience both with chronic fatigue and with long COVID that that really isn't the solution and often makes things worse when we try and push people too hard. So we've got a lot to learn about this. We're going to have to do a lot of research into this area and uh, really work hard at trying to find tests that identify what's wrong and treatments that help people like this. And because it's such a wide variety of presentations, there's probably not going to be a, a one-size-fits-all treatment I think that we'll have to have a, 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 a mixture of treatments that work for different people. And, and Pat, is, is there anything that's been identified as a risk factor for long COVID? So someone said to me, if you do get it, make sure you rest properly because if you overexert or work during your COVID period, you're at a higher risk of long COVID. Is that just us all gossiping to one another? I, I think that is probably anecdotes. I don't know if there's a, a good data to support that. So there's... I think we tend to remember it when someone says, oh, look, I got COVID and then I kept trying to you know, run my regular 10K runs each day and now I feel terrible. But there's probably people who do that and are fine. And so I think it's probably just more anecdotes rather than actual evidence. And are we, sh- are we sure it's COVID, that it is related to COVID, this long COVID? Oh, it, it does seem very likely, given the numbers of cases and the, the timing of it after COVID, it seems incredibly likely that it is. But just until we have a, a good diagnostic test, I guess that's it's impossible to say it's absolutely it. And is it true that some vaccines worked better than others? Some people, some people on the podcast have been laughing about AstraZeneca being. I said, oh, unfortunately, I got the sugar syrup. <laughs> um, what What's your view as someone who's now seen data across the world? Was our AstraZeneca program okay? Is it still decent protection? Yeah, it is still good protection. It, you know, maybe there, there are some small differences, but the differences are pretty small. So it's not like you've had a placebo or anything like that. You, you, know, you certainly got protection from that. It's probably not a bad thing to have a bit of a mixture of vaccines along the way. Um, it looks like you get slightly different types of protection with each one. And so that having a mixture maybe broadens your immune system's response against different variants. So I think uh, AstraZeneca is still good, uh, but if you've then had a third dose after that with either Pfizer or Moderna, then I think you're going to have very good protection from that triple vaccination schedule like that. And what does the vaccine do? What do people who worry about it being alive or changing their cells or... What does this vaccine do? Does it do the same thing that a chickenpox vaccine does in terms of the way it interacts with the cell? So the, when you get the injection you know, into your arm, the, the vaccine, so we talk about one of the mRNA ones, it gets into some of the cells in the arm muscle and particularly what it's hoping to do is get into some of the immune cells, which are called antigen-presenting cells in that area. And once it gets into those, then it travels to the, one of the lymph nodes in your armpit and then 
kind of it uh, then starts making the spike protein and then introduces it to those uh, white blood cells in the lymph node in your armpit. Once mm. it's gotten to that stage, then the vaccine is going to just fall apart. It's a very fragile vaccine, so it doesn't last very long. And then those uh, antigen-presenting cells that are the ones that carry it, they're all they've only got a short lifespan anyway. They're only around for one to two weeks. And so everything from the vaccine is gone out of your body very quickly. So the only thing that's left behind is that information of this is where you just said this is the spike protein. You white blood cells need to recognize this and start reacting to it by producing antibodies and being able to recognize uh, cells or virus that have this. Mm. And so you, you don't have the, vir- the vaccine in you for a long time. It's, it's gone very quickly. Uh, but you do have that immune memory, uh, which means you produce antibodies and you've also got uh, a different type of protection called cell-mediated protection, where the white blood cells can directly attack without antibodies. And both those things are very important. But the only thing we can measure is the antibody levels. And so people put a lot of uh, attention on how high your antibody levels are. But that's just one aspect. The, the, the presence of those memory cells after that, they are there and they will give you long-term protection against severe disease. So they're still important, even if your antibody levels have fallen down low. So we, we don't want to put too much emphasis just on your antibody levels. Uh, but the, the vaccines, they, they work very well. We've been very surprised how well they work for for a, like a cold type virus like coronavirus not traditionally we've not been able to develop any vaccines partly because we haven't tried very hard but to get the vaccines as effective as they are has been really surprising and you know, if you'd asked you know, the uh, experts in immunology before this they would have said it would be impossible to make a vaccine for something like this or it would be just something that would stop the severe disease and not protect against infection at all and when it first got introduced and then we saw it actually did protect against infection early on we were incredibly surprised and maybe got a little bit too optimistic about how well these would work but the fact that they are protecting very well against severe disease i think that's great and that's really what we could have aimed for if we use the wisdom of hindsight for this type of infection well pat you now get to go onto a plane the soup of COVID that is an international flight to Italy. I hope you can dodge it. I'll, I'll keep that. My fingers crossed. And yes, thank you very much. Thank you so much for everything you've done for the state and for the hospital. And it's been an amazing time. And we, we really appreciate you coming on the podcast. Thanks very much for having me, Tom. That's the end of the episode. I'm Tony Wilson. COVID Roulette is an Elfington Community Centre project and it has been funded through the Victorian Government's Local Community Access Grants Program. It's conceived and produced by myself and Leanne Coughlin. Our musical theme is from David Bridey. Our artwork from Lee Arkapore. Thanks so much to Sally Rippon for joining us to talk about her COVID experience. That's the end of the episode. If you've got a COVID story for us, get in touch. There's an address in the show notes. Keep well. May your COVID experiences be as short and as unsymptomatic as possible. And your best way of making that happen is to be vaccinated.